next to the peculiarity to which he owed his local appellation, Mr. Dunfer's most obvious characteristic was a deep-seated antipathy to the Chinese. I saw him once in a towering rage because one of his herdsmen had permitted a travel-heated Asian to slake his thirst at the horse trough in front of the saloon end of Joe's establishment. I ventured faintly to remonstrate with Joe for his unchristian spirit, but he merely explained that there was nothing about Chinamen in the New Testament, and strode away to wreak his displeasure upon his dog, which also, I suppose, the inspired scribes had overlooked. Some days afterward, finding him sitting alone in his barroom, I cautiously approached the subject, when, greatly to my relief, the habitual austerity of his expression visibly softened into something that I took for condescension. You young Easterners, he said, are a mile and a half too good for this country, and you don't catch on to our play. People who don't know a Chileno from a Kanaka can afford to hang out liberal ideas about Chinese immigration, but a fellow that has to fight for his bone with a lot of mongrel coolies hasn't any time for foolishness. This long consumer, who had probably never done an honest day's work in his life, sprung the lid of a Chinese tobacco box and with thumb and forefinger forked out a wad like a small haycock. Holding this reinforcement within supporting distance, he fired away with renewed confidence. They're a flight of devouring locusts, and they're going for everything green in this God-blessed land, if you want to know. Here he pushed his reserve into the breach, and when his gabble gear was again disengaged, resumed his uplifting discourse. I had one of them on this ranch five years ago, and I'll tell you about it so that you can see the nub of this whole question. I didn't pan out particularly well those days, drank more whiskey than was prescribed for me, and didn't seem to care for my duty as a patriotic American citizen. So I took that pagan in, as a kind of cook. But when I got religion over at the hill and they talked of running me for the legislature, it was given to me to see the light. But what was I to do? If I gave him the go, somebody else would take him, and mightn't treat him white. What was I to do? What would any good Christian do? Especially one new to the trade, and full to the neck with the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Joe paused for a reply, with an expression of unstable satisfaction, as of one who has solved the problem by a distrusted method. Presently, he rose and swallowed a glass of whiskey from a full bottle on the counter, then resumed his story. Besides, he didn't count for much, didn't know anything, and gave himself airs. They all do that. I said him nay, but he mulled it through on that line while he lasted. But after turning the other cheeks seventy and seven times, I doctored the dice so that he didn't last forever. And I'm almighty glad I had the sand to do it. Joe's gladness, which somehow did not impress me, was duly and ostentatiously celebrated at the bottle. About five years ago, I started in to stick up a shack. That was before this one was built, and I put it in another place. I set Ah Wee and a little cuss named Gopher to cutting the timber. Of course, I didn't expect Ah Wee to help much, for he had a face like a day in June and big black eyes. 
I guess maybe they were the damnedest size in this neck of woods. While delivering this trenchant thrust at common sense, Mr. Dunfer absently regarded a knothole in the thin board partition separating the bar from the living room, as if that were one of the eyes whose size and color had incapacitated his servant for good service. Now you eastern galoots won't believe anything against the yellow devils, he suddenly flamed out with an appearance of earnestness not altogether convincing. But I tell you that Chink was the perversest scoundrel outside San Francisco. The miserable pigtail Mongolian went to hewing away at the saplings all around the stems, like a worm or the dust gnawing a radish. I pointed out his error as patiently as I knew how, and showed him how to cut them on two sides, so as to make them fall right. But no sooner would I turn my back on him, like this, and he turned it on me, amplifying the illustration by taking some more liquor. Then he was at it again. It was just this way, while I looked at him so, regarding me rather unsteadily and with evident complexity of vision. He was all right, but when I looked away, so, taking a long pull at the bottle, he defied me. Then I'd gaze at him reproachfully, so, and butter wouldn't have melted in his mouth. Doubtless Mr. Dunfer honestly intended the look that he fixed upon me to be merely reproachful, but it was singularly fit to arouse the gravest apprehension in an unarmed person incurring it, and as I had lost all interest in his pointless and interminable narrative, I rose to go. Before I had fairly risen, he had again turned to the counter, and with a barely audible so, had emptied the bottle at a gulp. Heavens, what a yell! It was like a titan in this last strong agony. Joe staggered back after emitting it as a cannon recoils from its own thunder and then dropped into his chair, as if he had been knocked in the head like a beef, his eyes drawn sidewise toward the wall with a stare of terror. Looking in the same direction, I saw that the knothole in the wall had indeed become a human eye, a full black eye that glared into my own with an entire lack of expression more awful than the most devilish glitter. I think I must have covered my face with my hands to shut out the horrible illusion, if such it was, and Joe's little white man-of-all-work coming into the room broke the spell, and I walked out of the house with a sort of dazed fear that delirium tremens might be infectious. My horse was hitched at the watering trough, and untying him I mounted and gave him his head, too much troubled in mind to know whither he took me. I did not know what to think of all this, and like everyone who does not know what to think, I thought a great deal, and to little purpose. The only reflection that seemed at all satisfactory was that on the morrow I should be some miles away, with a strong probability of never returning. A sudden coolness brought me out of my abstraction, and looking up I found myself entering the deep shadows of the ravine. The day was stifling, and this transition from the pitiless, visible heat of the parched fields to the cool gloom, heavy with pungency of cedars and vocal with twittering of the birds that had been driven to its leafy asylum, was exquisitely refreshing. I looked for my mystery, as usual but not finding the ravine in a communicative mood, dismounted, 
led my sweating animal into the undergrowth, tied him securely to a tree, and sat down upon a rock to meditate. I began bravely by analyzing my pet superstition about the place. Having resolved it into its constituent elements, I arranged them in convenient troops and squadrons, and collecting all the forces of my logic bore down upon them from impregnable premises, with the thunder of irresistible conclusions and a great noise of chariots and general intellectual shouting. Then, when my big mental guns had overturned all opposition and were growing almost inaudibly, Away on the horizon of pure speculation, the routed enemy straggled in upon their rear, massed silently into a solid phalanx, and captured me, bag and baggage. An indefinable dread came upon me. I rose to shake it off and began threading the narrow dell by an old, grass-grown cow path that seemed to flow along the bottom, as a substitute for the brook that nature had neglected to provide. The trees among which the path straggled were ordinary, well-behaved plants, a trifle perverted as to trunk and eccentric as to bow, but with nothing unearthly in their general aspect. A few loose boulders, which had detached themselves from the sides of the depression to set up an independent existence at the bottom, had dammed up the pathway, here and there, but their stony repose had nothing in it of the stillness of death. There was a kind of death chamber hush in the valley. It is true, and a mysterious whisper above. The wind was just fingering the tops of the trees. That was all. I had not thought of connecting Joe Dunfer's drunken narrative with what I now sought, and only when I came into a clear space and stumbled over the level trunks of some small trees did I have the revelation. This was the site of the abandoned shack. The discovery was verified by noting that some of the rotting stumps were hacked all around, in a most unwoodmanlike way, while others were cut straight across, and the butt ends of the corresponding trunks had the blunt wedge form given by the axe of a master. The opening among the trees was not more than thirty paces across. At one side was a little knoll, a natural hillock, bare of shrubbery, but covered with wild grass and on this, standing out of the grass, a headstone of a grave. I do not remember that I felt anything like surprise at this discovery. I viewed that lonely grave with something of the feeling that Columbus must have had when he saw the hills and headlands of the New World. Before approaching it, I leisurely completed my survey of the surroundings. I was even guilty of the affectation of winding my watch at that unusual hour, and with needless care and deliberation. Then I approached my mystery. The grave, a rather short one, was in somewhat better repair than was consistent with its obvious age and isolation, and my eyes, I dare say, widened the trifle at a clump of unmistakable garden flowers showing evidence of recent watering. The stone had clearly enough done duty once as a doorstep. In its front was carved, or rather dug, an inscription. It read thus, Ah, we, Chinaman, age unknown, worked for Joe Dunfer. This monument is erected by him to keep the chink's memory green, likewise as a warning to celestials not to take on airs. Devil take them. She was a good egg.
I cannot adequately relate my astonishment at this uncommon inscription. The meager but sufficient identification of the deceased, the impudent candor of confession, the brutal anathema, the ludicrous change of sex and sentiment, all mark this record as the work of one who must have been at least as much demented as bereaved. I felt that any further disclosure would be a paltry anticlimax, and with an unconscious regard for dramatic effect turned squarely about and walked away. Nor did I return to that part of the county for four years. 2. Who drives sane oxen should himself be sane? Gee up there, old fuddy-duddy. This unique adjuration came from the lips of a queer little man perched upon a wagon full of firewood, behind a brace of oxen that were hauling it easily along with a simulation of mighty effort which had evidently not imposed on their lord and master. As that gentleman happened at the moment to be staring me squarely in the face as I stood by the roadside, it was not altogether clear whether he was addressing me or his beasts, nor could I say if they were named Fuddy and Duddy, and were both subjects of the imperative mood to G up. Anyhow, the command produced no effect on us, and the queer little man removed his eyes from mine long enough to spear Fuddy and Duddy alternately with a long pole, remarking, quietly but with feeling, during your skin, as if they enjoyed that integument in common. Observing that my request for a ride took no attention, and finding myself falling slowly astern, I placed one foot upon the inner circumference of a hind wheel and was slowly elevated to the level of the hub. Hence, I boarded the concern, sand ceremony, and scrambling forward seated myself beside the driver, who took no notice of me until he had administered another indiscriminate castigation to his cattle accompanied with the advice to buckle down, you derned incapable. Then the master of the outfit, or rather the former master, for I could not suppress a whimsical feeling that the entire establishment was my lawful prize, trained his big, black eyes upon me with an expression strangely, and somewhat unpleasantly, familiar, laid down his rod, which neither blossomed nor turned into a serpent, as I half expected folded his arms, and gravely demanded, What did you do to whiskey? My natural reply would have been that I drank it, but there was something about the query that suggested a hidden significance, and something about the man that did not invite a shallow jest. And so, having no other answer ready, I merely held my tongue, but felt as if I were resting under an imputation of guilt and that my silence was being construed into a confession. Just then, a cold shadow fell upon my cheek and caused me to look up. We were descending into my ravine. I cannot describe the sensation that came upon me. I had not seen it since it unbosomed itself four years before, and now I felt like one to whom a friend has made some sorrowing confession of crime long past and who has basely deserted him in consequence. The old memories of Joe Dunford, his fragmentary revelation, and the unsatisfying explanatory note by the headstone came back with singular distinctness. I wondered what had become of Joe, and I turned sharply round and asked my prisoner. He was intently watching his cattle, 
and without withdrawing his eyes, replied, Gia, old terrapin, he lies aside of Awi up the gulch. Like to see it? They always come back to the spot. I've been expecting you. Huh? At the enunciation of the aspirate, Fuddy Duddy, the incapable terrapin, came to a dead halt, and before the vowel had died away of the ravine, had folded up all his eight legs and lain down in the dusty road, regardless of the effect upon his dern skin. The queer little man slid off his seat to the ground and started up the dell without deigning to look back to see if I was following, but I was. It was about the same season of the year, and at near the same hour of the day, of my last visit. The jays clamored loudly, and the trees whispered darkly, as before, and I somehow traced in the two sounds a fanciful analogy to the open boastfulness of Mr. Joe, Dunford's mouth, and the mysterious reticence of his manner, and to the mingled hardihood and tenderness of his sole literary production, the epitaph. All things in the valley seemed unchanged, excepting the cow path, which was almost wholly overgrown with weeds. When we came out into the clearing, however, there was change enough. Among the stumps and trunks of the falling saplings, those that had been hacked, China fashion, were no longer distinguishable from those that were cut Melican way. It was as if the old world barbarism and the new world civilization had reconciled their differences by the arbitration of an impartial decay as is the way of civilizations. The knoll was there, but the Hunnish brambles had overrun and all but obliterated its effete grasses, and the patrician garden violet had capitulated to his plebeian brother, perhaps had merely reverted to his original type. Another grave, a long, robust mound, had been made beside the first, which seemed to shrink from the comparison and in the shadow of a new headstone the old one lay prostrate, with its marvelous inscription illegible by accumulation of leaves and soil. In point of literary merit, the new was inferior to the old, was even repulsive in its terse and savage jocularity. Joe Dunfer. Dunfor. I turned from it with indifference, and brushing away the leaves from the tablet of the dead pagan restored to light the mocking words which, fresh from their long neglect, seemed to have a certain pathos. My guide, too, appeared to take on an added seriousness as he read it, and I fancied that I could detect beneath his whimsical manner something of manliness, almost of dignity. But while I looked at him, his former aspect... So subtly unhuman, so tantalizingly familiar, crept back into his big eyes, repellent and attractive. I resolved to make an end of the mystery if possible. My friend, I said, pointing to the smaller grave, did Joe Dunfer murder that Chinaman? He was leaning against a tree and looking across the open space into the top of another, or into the blue sky beyond. He neither withdrew his eyes, nor altered his posture as he slowly replied. No, sir. He justifiably homicided him. Then he really did kill him. Kill him? I should say he did, rather. Doesn't everybody know that? Didn't he stand up before the coroner's jury and confess it? And didn't they find a verdict of, came to his death by a wholesome Christian sentiment working in the Caucasian breast? 
And didn't the church at the hill turn whiskey down for it? And didn't the sovereign people elect him justice of the peace to get even on the gospelers? I don't know where you were brought up. But did Joe do that because the Chinaman did not or would not learn to cut down trees like a white man? Sure. It stands so on the record, which makes it true and legal. My knowing better doesn't make any difference with legal truth. It wasn't my funeral, and I wasn't invited to deliver an oration. But the fact is, Whiskey was jealous of me. And the little wretch actually swelled out like a turkey cock and made a pretense of adjusting an imaginary necktie, noting the effect in the palm of his hand, held up before him to represent a mirror. Jealous of you? I repeated with ill-mannered astonishment. That's what I said. Why not? Don't I look all right? He assumed a mocking attitude of studied grace and twitched the wrinkles out of his threadbare waistcoat. Then, suddenly dropping his voice to a low pitch of singular sweetness, he continued. Whiskey thought a lot of that chink. Nobody but me knew how he doted on him. Couldn't bear. I'm out of his sight, the darn protoplasm. And we ain't come down to this clearing one day and found I'm in me neglecting our work. I'm asleep, and me grappling a tarantula out of his sleeve. Whiskey laid hold of my axe and let us have it. Good and hard. I dodged just then, for the spider bit me. But all we got it bad in the side and tumbled about like anything. Whiskey was just weighing me out one when he saw the spider fastened on my finger. Then he knew make a jackass of himself. He threw away the axe and got down on his knees alongside of Awi, who gave a last little kick and opened his eyes. He had eyes like mine, and putting up his hands drew down Whiskey's ugly head and held it there while he stayed. That wasn't long, for a trembling ran through. I'm and E gave a bit of moan and beat the game. During the progress of the story, the narrator had become transfigured. The comic, or rather, the sardonic element was all out of him. And as he painted that strange scene, it was with difficulty that I kept my composure. And this commensurate actor had somehow so managed me that the sympathy due to his dramatis personae was given to himself. I stepped forward to grasp his hand, when suddenly a broad grin danced across his face, and with a light, mocking laugh, he continued. When Whiskey got his nut out of that, he was a sight to see. All his fine clothes, he dressed mighty blind in those days, were spoiled everlasting. His hair was tousled, and his face, what I could see of it, was whiter than the ace of lilies. He stared once at me and looked away as if I didn't count. And then there were shooting pains chasing one another from my bitten finger into my head, and it was gopher to the dark. That why I wasn't at the inquest. But why did you hold your tongue afterward, I asked. It's that kind of tongue, he replied, and not another word would he say about it. After that, Whiskey took to drinking harder and harder, and was rabider and rabider anti-cooley. But I don't think he was ever particularly glad that he dispelled Awi. He didn't put on so much dog about it when we were alone and when he had to hear of a darn spectacular extravaganza like you. He put up that headstone and gouged the inscription according to his varying moods. 
It took um, three weeks working between drinks. I gouged his in one day. When did Joe die? I asked rather absently. The answer took my breath. Pretty soon after I looked at I'm through that knot hole when you had put something in his whiskey, you darn Borgia. Recovering somewhat from my surprise at this astounding charge, I was half-minded to throttle the audacious accuser, but was restrained by a sudden conviction that came to me in the light of a revelation. I fixed a grave look upon him and asked, as calmly as I could, and when did you go loony? Nine years ago, he shrieked, throwing out his clenched hands. Nine years ago, when that big brute killed the woman who loved him better than she did me. Me, who had followed her from San Francisco, where he won her a draw poker. Me, who watched over her for years when the scoundrel she belonged to was ashamed to acknowledge her and treat her white. Me, who for her sake kept his cuss secret till it ate him up. Me, who when you poisoned the beast, fulfilled as his last requests to lay I'm alongside her and give I'm a stone to the head and I'm. And I've never since seen her grave till now, for I didn't want to meet him here. Meet him? Why, Gopher, my poor fellow? He is dead? That's why I'm afraid of him. I followed the little wretch back to his wagon and wrung his hand at parting. It was now nightfall, and as I stood there at the roadside in the deepening gloom, watching the blank outlines of the receding wagon, a sound was borne to me on the evening wind. A sound as a series of vigorous thumps, and a voice came out of the night. Gee up there, you derned old geranium. End of The Haunted Valley by Ambrose Bierce Recorded by Raphael Phoenix Blaze June 2012, Dallas, Texas Thank you everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out the show at pgttcm.com. Check out the show notes on your listening device, on your smart device, on your laptop, or however you're checking this show out. Follow the show notes to check out the people who have been on the show as guests, find out what the books they're working on, or art projects, or movies. And of course, check out the sponsors. Support the people who support us. Find cool stuff from those folks over at Psychedelic Water. It's water with mild psychedelics that are legal in America, suspended in green tea and other delicious flavors. And we've also got Taza Chocolate. And Taza Chocolate, they are out of Somerset, Massachusetts. It's stone ground chocolate. They use dairy alternatives. It's vegan. And oh my good. It is really good. Some of them come in bars. Some of them come in those eels, like the abuelita. You can mix it in, into, uh, you make your own hot chocolate. It's really good stuff. I really, you can eat it by itself. And that's Tasa. That's in the show notes. Who else do we got? We got Glary. Oh, man, I love Glary. Glary is really inexpensive guitars. You can get some really good prices on amplifiers, get good prices on mandolins. They've got all kinds of cool stuff, not just guitars. I love guitars, but Glary has more. More than just guitars. Copper Cow. Okay, Copper Cow is amazing. It's these little packages that have this uh, coffee already inside. Some of them come with creamers. It's flavors like black, lavender, churro, salt caramel. They've got some really good flavors. I really like the lavender and the black. I'm going to try the churro pretty soon. Um, I have friends who have purchased this and they highly recommend it. Coffee from Vietnam. 
and just this really, 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 really good Vietnamese pour-over coffee that I highly recommend. Golden Goat CBD. Check it out. Golden Goat CBD. I have anxiety issues. I love, I live in a state where you can purchase uh, cannabis legally, so I don't go with their Delta, Delta 8, but do you, do you live somewhere where you can't just, I don't know, walk three blocks and everyone goes, hey, DB, and you get your order that you phoned in and then go home and then work on your podcast? No, maybe you live someplace that's awful. What if you're in Texas? Anyway, uh, check out, check out. Check them out. Golden Goat, CBD, Delta 8. They have chewables. They've got uh, gummies. They've got cool stuff like that. They've got uh, tinctures and whatever you need to get you going in the direction you need to be going. The Fretwire. DIY guitar, guitar parts, and guitar accessories. Centrally located in Utah. Get what you want. Pretty darn quick. The Fretwire. So, yeah, they've got a pretty good community of people. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an advanced lutineer. The Fretwire, they've got people who will answer your questions. I assume they're, they're comment boards and stuff like that when I have questions on, like, oh, man, I want to make a baritone flying V, uh, but how am I going to get a baritone neck on a Gibson body? Wait a minute. This flying V was so custom already that, oh, man, okay. Better check the Fretwire forums, see if anyone else has had this problem. And generally, since there's so many people with the Fretwire, that work with the Fretwire, that do stuff with the Fretwire, it's like having a massive community. And also, pretty good prices, uh, pretty decent shipping, and I have to say, I, I like them. I've, I've worked with other companies in the past for building guitars. After, I like the Fretwire. And, yeah, if you want to get into building guitars, if you've just, I don't know, during the pandemic, did you learn how to play guitar and want to build them? I did the opposite way around. First, I learned how to build guitars, and then I learned how to set up guitars, and then I learned how to play guitars. So, I don't know, maybe you want to do it the opposite way of me. You know how to play a guitar, now you want to learn the guts of it. Anyway, Fretwire's got you covered. Check them out in the show notes. Back to the show. Recording by Jared Hess. The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal. That all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual, physical, and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. 
wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there, but of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do. For lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not, or are no longer, living. Close by my home there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of a waning moon, but of these things I must not now speak. I will tell only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hydes, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendants had been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mists and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a ponderous and forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. The abode of the race whose scions are here inured had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb, but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulchre. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place of shade and stillness, the sad urnful of ashes had come from a distant land, to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seem to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when first I stumbled upon the half-hidden house of death. It was in midsummer, 
when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the senses are well-nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of the soil and the vegetation. In such surroundings, the mind loses its perspective. Time and space become trivial and unreal, and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollow, thinking thoughts I need not discuss, and conversing with things I need not name. In years, a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders unknown to the throng, and the oddly aged in certain respects. When upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault. I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, and the funereal carvings above the arch aroused in me no associations of mournful or terrible character. Of graves and tombs I knew and imagined much, but had, on account of my peculiar temperament, been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation, and its cold, damp interior into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity was born the madly unreasoning desire which had brought me to this hell of confinement. Spurred on by a voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest, I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous chains which barred my passage. In the waning light of day, I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view to throwing wide the stone door and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided. But neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would some day force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician with the iron-gray beard, who comes each day to my room, once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania, but I will leave final judgment to my readers when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the slightly open vault, and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditionally receptive ears of the small boy, I learned much, though an habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning of the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion and I felt that the great and sinister family of the burned-down mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. 
Once I thrust a candle within the nearly closed entrance, but could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's Lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage, telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny whenever he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. This legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease, but until then I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches by the dank portal became less persistent, and much of my time was spent in other, though equally strange, pursuits. I would sometimes rise very quietly in the night, stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial from which I had been kept by my parents. What I did there I may not say, for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things, but I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble, I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this that I shocked the community with a queer conceit about the burial of the rich and celebrated Esquire Brewster, a maker of local history who was interred in 1711 and whose slate headstone bearing a graven skull and crossbones was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination, I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodman Simpson, had stolen the silver-buckled shoes, silken hose, and satin small clothes of the deceased before burial, but that the squire himself, not fully inanimate, had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day after interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hydes. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when I might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark. I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming of strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. I must have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices. 
Of those tones and accents, I hesitate to speak. Of their quality, I will not speak. But I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy. Though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting. That I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that as I awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home, I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key. Which next day unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault on the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me, and my heart leaped with an exultation I can but ill describe. As I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle, I seemed to know the way. And though the candle sputtered. With the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty charnel house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate, I read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde. Who had come from Sussex in 1640 and died here a few years later? In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well preserved and untenanted casket adorned with a single name, which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn, I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked at me strangely and marvelled at the signs of ribald revelry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. Henceforth, I haunted the tomb each night, seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never reveal. My speech, always susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change, and my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later, a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor. Till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world, despite my lifelong seclusion, my formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had pored in youth, and covered the fly leaves of my books with facile impromptu epigrams. 
which brought up suggestions of Gay, Pryor, and the sprightliest of the Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast, I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an effusion of 18th century Bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Gregorian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale, and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each on your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that bring us relief. So fill up your glass, for life will soon pass. When you're dead, you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. Anna Crayon had a red nose, so they say. But what's a red nose if you're happy and gay? Gad split me, I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half a year. So Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your goblets and pass them around. Better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff as you thirstily quaff. Under six feet of dirt, tis less easy to laugh. The fiend strike me blue, I'm scarce able to walk. And damn ye if I can stand upright or talk. Here, landlord, bid Betty to summon a chair. I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. So lend me a hand. I'm not able to stand, but I'm gay whilst I linger on top of the land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms, previously indifferent to such things. I had now an unspeakable horror of them and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow sub-cellar of whose existence I seemed to know in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood, but now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord about my neck, its presence known only to me. I never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon whilst within its walls. One morning, as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my boyer was discovered and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Were my sojourns beyond the chained door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parent in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the boyer outside the tomb my sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlocked portal stood ajar. I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume perfect openness in going to the vault, 
confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality, which I must not describe, when the thing happened, and I was borne away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds and a hellish phosphorescence rose from the rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose presiding daemon beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, gone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision. Every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand, Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. Suddenly a peal of thunder resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry clave the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisterers, struck with terror at the descent of a calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained riveted to my seat by a groveling fear which I had never felt before. And then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of the hides. Was not my coffin prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest till eternity amongst the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? I, I would claim my heritage of death even though my soul goes seeking through the ages for another corporeal tenement to represent it on that vacant slab in the alcove of the vault, Jervis Hyde should never share the sad fate of Palinurus. As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb, Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of the lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told of a violent stroke from the heavens. And from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. 
Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box, whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which had unearthed it, contained many papers and objects of value. But I had eyes for one thing alone. It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bag wig and bore the initials J.H. The face was such that as I gazed I might well have been studying my mirror. On the following day I was brought to this room with the barred windows, but I have been kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor, for whom I bore a fondness in infancy, and who, like me, loves the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chained portal, and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the boyer outside the grim façade, my half-open eyes fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer, since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on that night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I learned during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me, and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago he burst open the lock which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar, and descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab, in an alcove, he found an old but empty coffin, whose tarnished plate bears the single word, Jervis. In that coffin, and in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. End of The Tomb Recording by Jared Hess What a bunch of spookiness that was. I hope we learned our lesson and whatever the moral of that spooky story was. Or we just got spooked. Anyway, hey everyone, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're having fun enjoying these spooky stories. I'm trying to keep the music to the minimum because someone said, hey, it's too loud and it's distracting from the spookiness. And I said, hey, I'm not that great at creating atmosphere for spookiness. Unless it's like an RPG or a haunted house. Anyway, so thanks everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, DB. Join us weekly when Farmer Dave and I get more into the Cthulhu Mythos and less about spooky stories. And we have special guests like Ken Height, Scott Glancy. In the past, we had Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman with all kinds of various writers game designers, artists, musicians, you name it, we've had them on. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And join us again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa. 
or I'll ship you down to Sathagua. You're going to get that shirt in the shop. P-G-T-T-C-M dot com. Check the show notes. Check out our sponsors. Check out the links. Check it out. And goodbye.